what percentage of Olympic gold medalists uh, are doped that we don't know right now? The the, the uh, roughly like a third. The, pre the prevalence tests are are hard to uh, evaluate because you know you're not sure whether it is in fact uh, confidential, and and so if you're uh, if if you have doped uh, and you might if you were absolutely certain nobody would know uh, you would answer it truthfully uh, otherwise you may not but it, it's it's clearly double digits welcome back to the social kick podcast i'm brian lundquist we got a full crew today dr john mullen luke paddington and joining us virtually an icon of Olympic sport, of, of sport in general, but especially in the swimming community. Welcome, Dick Pound. It's great to talk to you today. Thanks. Nice to be with you. Thanks. Well, well, Dick, we got a lot to get into today. Uh, your career is honestly um, really humbling and frankly um, makes me feel totally inadequate reading your resume. <laughs> um, but I wanted to start back with, you know, your roots in swimming. We're all swimmers and uh, you know, you were one of the best swimmers in the world, Olympic finalist in Rome. Uh, and then uh, wanted to kind of get into the fact that we're headed to Tokyo for the Olympic, well, not we're going, but the Olympics are in Tokyo this year. And, you know, the end of your career was right around the time, the last time the Olympics were in Tokyo. But it sounds like there was kind of an interesting story coming off of, of Rome, uh, you finaling in Rome and continuing to improve uh that that led to you you not being in in tokyo representing canada so what's what's the background on that on, on not going to tokyo yeah oh well I, that was i i had I'd done rome when i was i guess in third year at, at mcgill and then uh i was going to go into finish my chartered accountant uh, qualification and then go into law and the it was the fall of of uh, 64 because in those days they were smart enough not to go to tokyo in july and august and, but but it would be right it was right in the middle of my first uh, year of law and i was thinking you know if i if i were going to be a, a swimming coach or something like that it would you know two Olympic games on the same uh, cv would maybe look more attractive and, and i'd been sort of encouraged because i'd won the commonwealth games in 62. Mm -hmm. And um, the chap who came second was uh, Bobby McGregor from Scotland. And if I had stayed as far ahead of him in Tokyo as I was in Perth, I'd have won the Olympics. Showlander would be toast. Now they got a lot better and I'm not sure I would have <laughs> kept up with that. So I, basically in those days with no money in, in, in swimming and, and, and no money really in the sports system, uh, when you finish college, you had to get out and go to work. And that was, I, I was looking forward to that. And I had a wonderful time swimming. And I, I went to each of the, the three majors uh, as they were at the time, the, the Pan Ams in Chicago in 59, and then Rome in 60 and Perth in 62. So I'd, I'd been to each one of them. I'd got better um, each time. And it was fun, but it was I had no uh, no problem about stopping. And, and you know, frankly, one of the, the saddest things you see in sports sometimes are folks that spend the rest of their lives polishing their gold medal, uh, you know, with their hands. And, and I think that ends up being kind of sad and unfulfilling. So 
I, I had the fun, uh, got reinforced with some success and then uh, got on with life. Yeah, but you, and you, but you still kept swimming recreationally throughout your career. I mean, I met you at alumni meet in 93, I think, and you were still swimming. So you still swim because you love the sport and you love, you love competing, I can tell, don't you? you know. I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, now, uh, now I, I, my, my standard answer when people ask me if I still swim, I say, oh, yes, yes, if the boat tips over, <laughs> I swim, and, and not very far. But, you know, lakes and lakes and beaches are fine, but getting into a chlorinated pool and going back and forth and doing it worse than I ever did is not really motivating. No, I hear you. Well, you competed in an era with no goggles, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you, if you swam now, if the boat did fall over, uh, you grab a pair of goggles or are you just straight no goggles guy? Just uh, I, I've never actually, I tried them a couple of times and I couldn't get them to seal properly. <laughs> And the thought of diving in on a racing uh, dive, at least the way we did it back then, yeah. they, they just they just get ripped off. And uh, yeah, well, that was the old you go out as far as you can and come down like that. And <laughs> yeah. and usually, yeah. usually there's the self-protective jackknife just before you. Head. <laughs> yeah. I had I had uh, there was a book that I'd run into when I was younger, but you know something every competitive swimmer should know. I can't I've forgotten the name of the author, but. But he had a, a view of, of, of not doing the launching flat out, but diving into the water. Uh -huh. And so I got pretty good at that and, and uh, good entry and, and uh, was up and swimming pretty quickly, uh, unlike this, the 25 meters of uh, dolphin that you, you get these days. So it changes your whole concept of a race and breathing and all, all that sort of stuff. It's, uh, mm. it, it would take take somebody my age some time to get used to it yeah I bet I bet it's fascinating to go through um you know to watch the sport progress so far and 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 see the innovation that's happened in the sport during you know your lifetime and um and how how much things have changed from like I don't know I mean the, the evolution of butterfly as a stroke to you know the the rules and regulations and the the like the proliferation of underwater dolphin kicking as a fifth stroke to you know, different professional opportunities, um, you know, within sports from amateurism to professional, there's like some mm. huge fundamental changes that you've, that you've seen throughout the sport. Um, and then also some things that you've had an opportunity to, to really have your stamp on. Well, that was, it was fun. I mean, I was swimming long enough ago that when butterfly was finally admitted as a separate stroke with the over, over water recovery, mm -hmm. it was, it was the butterfly breaststroke. Mm -hmm. and, and and they used a breaststroke kick at, at first and then some somebody figured out that the, the dolphin kick was uh, very fast and the, and the coach that I was swimming with then way up in northern British Columbia uh, was one of the first to get into that uh, that and then I guess what probably was Bill Yorzik in 56 that right. yeah. would have been the first yeah. uh, Olympic champion to use the the dolphin kick for those who are listening, that's the famous George Gates, who uh, had an incredible story of what of your time in Ocean Falls. I encourage you guys all to learn what happened in Ocean Falls. It was incredible. Um, but Dick, talk to me about, you know, the, what made you fall in love with the Olympic movement? So you started your law degree, and then you just had this this meteoric rise through the Canadian Olympics, uh, uh, Quebec Canadian Olympic Association, and then the IOC, being such a young member. 
why? What was it about the Olympics and, and, and the, the administration of sport that drew you to want to do that career, start that off at such a young age? Well, it, it started when I decided to retire from international competition. I, I, I stayed and, you know, you could do it with your left hand uh, in, in intercollegiate stuff. So I, I swam for McGill, but I didn't uh, practice very hard. But, uh, but generally, as I look back on, I said, I, I had so much fun doing this. That if there's anything I can do to help, you know, people in following generations to have the same uh, fantastic uh, experience, I'm happy to do it. So I, I started off uh, at officiating at swimming meets. I was a starter. I was a sprinter. So I knew the, what people might try and do on the start <laughs> in the days when you had a second chance. And then because I was an accountant, uh, I, I became the treasurer of the Quebec section of the Canadian, what was then the Canadian Amateur Swimming Association. Mm. And and uh, I think I ended up doing the audit of, of the of, of the section uh, once I was professionally qualified. And I remember one day I was, uh, I had two experiences at, at the Montreal Amateur Athletic Association, the famous FAA on Peel Street in Montreal, one of the oldest and most historic uh, sports clubs in, in North America. And uh, one was uh, the Colonel John W. Davies, who ran the Canadian Commonwealth Games Association. That, that's what it's called now. He said, young pound, he said, you know, if you keep your nose clean in 25 or 30 years, maybe we'll be able to sneak you onto the board of the Commonwealth Games Federation. Thank you very much. That's that's wonderful. And, and about three months later, in the, at the MAA again, where I had lunch pretty well every day when I was at McGill, one of the uh, a lot of the folks that ran the Canadian Olympic Association, as it then was, uh, came over and said, uh, "You know, young pound, I'm young pound," and, uh, and uh, I said, uh, "Yes, sir," which is what you said in those days. Said you're a chartered accountant, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am, sir. And he said, you're going to be a lawyer. And I said, well, pass my bar exams this year. Yes, I will. <laughs> Anyways, some signal passed between him and the others at the at the, the COA table. And he said, how would you like to be the secretary of the Canadian Olympic Association? I've now I've been at McGill for eight or nine years, so I'm really gifted with words and so on. And I said, gee, that, that would be swell. You know, what do I have to do? And he held up his hand. He said, young man, you leave that to us. And so uh, just just after my 26th birthday, I became the secretary of the Canadian Olympic Association. Wow. And uh, it, it sort of the, uh, the year after that happened, the, uh, the current, the then current president uh, uh, retired. Mm -hmm. And the new one lived all the way out in Vancouver. He'd been an Olympic athlete in track and field in the 1932 games, I think. And so there, here I am in, in Montreal, which is the headquarters, basically running the National Olympic Committee of, of the country. And the, the sort of the year before, we'd had a the board of directors, uh, of which I was then one, um, had to decide on who our summer games hope candidate city would be mm -hmm. between uh, Hamilton, Toronto, and Montreal. And we also had uh, Banff and uh, Vancouver Garibaldi mm -hmm. bidding for the, the 
be the summer game, the winter games, excuse me, in 1976. And that was a, that was fun. So when in 1970, Montreal was selected, here I am now, I'm 28, I guess, and, and uh, essentially running the host National Olympic Committee for the, the 76 games. Wow. So it's really, re really uh, quite neat. And in what in the process? Oh yes, in in, in Munich, I, I was the, uh, an assistant chef de mission, yeah. which uh, in those days for Canada meant going to a lot of preliminary events in the morning to watch uh, Canadians not finish in the finals, and uh, and then we had of course the uh, the, the Munich uh, the uh, the um, Israeli uh, Palestinian. Uh, mm -hmm. Which was, you know, and our big concern there was, uh, was you know, let's hope these old fools on the IOC uh, don't do something stupid like cancel the games. Mm -hmm. And it was it was a close run thing, but, but anyway, they had they had a day of a day off for a service mm -hmm. and, and that sort of stuff, and then then carried on. So that worked out very well. Mm -hmm. And I remember coming back because we were Montreal was going to be the next host city uh, for summer games and all my friends are saying so what should we get what what ticket should we buy you know gymnastics uh, swimming whatever and i said well tell you what for something different think about volleyball and they all said volleyball i said no no what you thought you were playing in high school is not volleyball uh, and and i i thought uh, frankly that the the volleyball events in Montreal were uh, the most exciting uh, of the sports events. Yeah, <laughs> swim, swimming, as we know, was kind of kind of taint, tainted with the, um, the DDR women in particular. <laughs> yeah, when you did mention the IOC and, and perhaps some of the things that you've been outspoken about with them, um, Obviously, the average listener just knows the IOC, thinks they're an altruistic beast. They're doing the best that they can for the athletes. But I'd love to hear maybe your perspective on the ISC and its role and how that role could be better. Well, uh, sure. I, I, I must say when, I, when I got onto it, which was a bit of a surprise, yeah, uh, I was very lucky, very lucky that the existing uh, IOC member, Canadian IOC member of the day, was on the IOC executive board at that time when, when, when uh, the candidacy came up, and, and because we'd hosted the '76 games in the IOC protocol, uh, Canada became entitled to a second member. Hmm. If you hadn't hosted the games, and you know, unless you were a huge country, uh, you only got one member. And and I sort of said, well, listen, you know, one of these days that's going to end and, and we're not going to end up with, you know, Canada is a small country. We're not going to end up with an automatic membership. So think about appointing somebody who's younger than the average. And, and, and so, no, I'm not coming into my 40 something year and on the IOC. And so that, that somehow resonated and, and the uh, sort of the understanding was that you would spend your first, 10 years listening and learning from your elders and, and so forth. Um, and that lasted, uh, I think, for part of my first session, because uh, we had we had, we had had the China 
you know, the post Montreal, um, China, Taiwan, Mm-hmm. Uh, incident and, and Canada not letting Taiwan compete under its official mm-hmm. uh, United Nations name, which was in, in those days the Republic of China. Mm-hmm. And so I, I waded in on that, and, and it's it's I've, I've stayed there uh, uh, ever since. But and, and the Olympics back then, I mean, I mean, what what drew you? What made you go to work every day? What made what what made you? What did you really believe in, and do you still believe in all that now? What, what made you, as a young thirty-something-year-old, getting into the IOC? Uh, you competed as an athlete, and then you've seen it as a chef de mission, and then you've seen it as a as the host country. What 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 what's about the Olympics? Did you fall in love with and still love? I I think pretty well all of it. I mean, it, it, the the IOC was a, a very small, very impecunious organization when I joined. We still had to, you know, we had to pay our own way in our own hotels and everything like that. There was actually a, a, a an annual membership fee, mm. so that they, you could support, uh, I think, a one person staff in in Lausanne. And so that was a that was a big change. The Canadian Olympic Association was very good, and they subsidized the, the travel because, uh, uh, you know, as a, as a young lawyer, I, I didn't have the kind of money that, uh, you, you know. Most most of the IOC members had in those days, yeah. And then, um, fairly fairly soon into it, uh, I got. Uh, I was the last member elected under Lord Killannan's presidency, right? And and so he he, and that was seventy eight. So he he his health was not great, and and he decided not to run for a second term. Mm. Almost unheard of in IOC. <laughs> Where, where you know most people think the idea of a good term is to is to leave feet first, and uh, like a poop. Yeah. So he didn't uh, he didn't run, and and Juan Antonio Samranch yeah. uh, became elected, and he was uh, he was a different person from uh, from Kalanen, who was kind of an affable, nice guy, fun to chat with, and and, and so on, but he really wasn't focused on on what needed to be done uh, for the Olympics. And and so Sam Ranch had a, he had a, he came in after the Moscow boycott. He was elected in Moscow. And, and uh, he said, look, a couple of things we've got to do. We've got to, we've got to expand the Olympic movement as much as we can to make it as, as universal as possible. Number two, we've got to, we've got to develop a, a real solidarity among the Olympic family so that we, we, we act and, Totally. Think in, in a concerted manner, and we've got to become financially self-sufficient mm-hmm. because if you're if you're depending on government funding, you're toast, and you're you're just uh, you're, you 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 become a pawn. So those were sort of three of his main um, directional efforts. Mm-hmm. He had figured out um, somewhat faster than most of the IOC members that, that television was the key. Mm-hmm. To all of this, that I mean, it, it was a, a medium that was capable of producing income, and it was it was the way that we could broaden the reach of the Olympics, you know, around and through the world. And so we uh, we eventually got to the point where I remember I was sitting in my office one day and phone rang and Deke, I was Deke. <laughs> it's Juan Antonio. Hi, Juan. What's up? He says, uh, "I just wanted to say that you're now the chair of our television negotiations committee." 
<laughs> and I said, what? I said, I, I don't know anything about television. Nothing. He said, well, none of us do. But it's it's our, our largest potential asset. And, and right. we've got to figure it out. And, and, and it's not the way he spoke, but we've got to find some way to monetize this uh, more effectively. And so I, and he also didn't like Monique Berlieu, who was the director. And so he, I, I think I was more to be a thorn in her side than <laughs> actually contribute to the revenue flow. But yeah. So Dick, there's, um, there's a couple of things you hit on. Uh, first of all, my, my first memory of Juan Antonio Samaranch was I'm, I, I grew up in Atlanta. And so uh, the Olympics in Atlanta in 96, I was 11 years old, attended a few swimming uh, events. Um, you had the, the bombing uh, in Centennial Park. And so, um, but, and, and then he went on to call those games most exceptional, uh, which was, was perceived as a slight. Um, and so that's quite, quite the, the memory of those games. Um, first question I wanted to see, you're, you mentioned 72 and being on the outside. What was it like being in the IOC as vice president uh, when that happened in Atlanta in 96? Well, it was, uh, I remember I had, uh... I had been down in Centennial Park, in fact, walked through it after we closed the, our hospitality operations, which I was responsible for those, and um, got back to the hotel and we were watching something and, and heard the bomb go off. And I thought, oh shit, um, here we go. So I thought uh, the best thing I could do would be to get some sleep because we were gonna have to deal with this uh, in the morning. So I, I I went to bed, and that was probably a smarter thing to do than than after entertaining people all night to try and make sense of uh, what we should do. And the and the key was was you know to make sure that the games continued. That you, you don't you don't give in to to terror the same way the IOC didn't give in uh, a close run thing, but didn't give in in, in Munich. And so uh, yeah, no, it was it was. Uh, it was difficult, and and um, but but it passed fairly quickly. I mean, it, there were a lot, a lot of people hurt. One person killed, another person running to see what the problem was. I think had a heart attack, and it can count as a, as an ancillary uh, casualty of, of the bombing. But uh, you know, we got we were we were back in business, uh, entertaining our, our sponsors and broadcasters. I think in about three days, maybe. And, and things things went on pretty well. And what what was uncomfortable looking at it from the IOC side, you know, in, in the direction of the police investigations and so forth, is that they wanted a suspect. Mm -hmm. And by God, they were going to have one mm -hmm. very quickly. And and they landed on somebody, and you know, he was pilloried, and uh, it turned out to be the wrong person and uh, I, I think he uh, was able to parlay that false arrest and, and publicity into a, a fairly tidy sum of money uh, for the future yeah yeah so uh, there's a couple of avenues I want to come back to sponsorships and the influence on that and the in the race schedule and everything but 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 quickly on this so um, you know, th this is a Tokyo Olympic, the IOC as it prepares for Tokyo is in um, a much different place having to think about a global pandemic and the, the health of, you know, the spectators and the athletes in a way that we've never imagined before. Um, but, you know, to, 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 uh, in some ways in a parallel to the security of the Olympic Games, 
you know, these terrorist events that have happened around the Olympics bring, um, especially in a post 9-11 world, I'm sure there's just like such a heavy amount of, of planning and infrastructure around ensuring public safety. What are your thoughts on like now the, the, that in addition to the health like if, if you were still in the IOC, what is what are they what are they doing to plan? What does the IOC do? How do they mobilize, um, you know, with perhaps somewhat limited resources uh, to make sure that, um, you know, the world is, is safe and the games can go on uh, as as they're intended to do? Well, one of the things you got to do is, is make sure you don't think you're more powerful than you really are. I mean, we're, we're a, a hundred and change members spread around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know now we can afford uh, a good uh, administration, a very capable administration. But mm -hmm. but security is is a governmental problem mm -hmm. issue, and we make sure that that's you know when when we evaluate cities, we we try and do a, an evaluation of security risk and, and so forth, and financial risk and political risk. But we we make it clear that they're responsible for that. And generally, there's there's a surprising amount of international cooperation in and around uh, the Olympics. The sharing of information regarding bad guys, mm -hmm. uh, threat assessment, and, and and all that sort of stuff. So it it works pretty seamlessly. And uh, you know, the paradigm change there was was Munich. In in Rome, there was security. Basically, it was crowd control. And you know, the only security issue was keeping the boys out of the girls section of the Olympic Village and, and not getting bothered by, you know, the pedestrians and what like, uh, whatnot. So that was a change. And then 9-11 was another change. Um, and uh, I think we've learned, everybody's learned from all of that. And the security is, is uh, at a much higher and, and, and frankly, more sophisticated and integrated level than, than ever before. Yeah, I was yeah. at the, I was at the Rio Games, and we, the biggest threat we had was a Zika mosquito. And I remember landing in at the Rio Games, and I was amazed by the military presence from a destroyer off of Copacabana Beach to guns on the highway, and also the the the, the, the threats online. Um, the company I work for, um, you know, there was there's a there was a start of like millions of threats coming in online of malware coming in and, and the stops. So it, it was quite robust in in, in Rio. Um, but Dick, you've, you you know you 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 were the first one who said that one of the first that said that Tokyo will be postponed last year, and now you're you're pretty much um, you know another military an analogy is the vaccines, and you've been outspoken about the vaccines and athletes and priority. You want you want to comment on what was your thoughts about athletes and the, the vaccination schedule? Yeah, certainly. Well, what somebody asked me that? Do you think athletes should be priority or prioritized? And I said, well, look. I think each country has to decide mm -hmm. what its distribution plan will be, and 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 clearly the the frontline responders and, and all all those people and the 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 elderly who are at risk in in homes and hospitals and so on uh, absolutely come first. I said I, I don't know any Olympic athlete that would would be elbowing some ninety year old out of the way on this. But but let's say. Uh, in a country like Canada, where you're say, rounded up to 40 million, if 25% of our population falls into that vulnerable care uh, category, you've still got 30 million uh, people out there 
to deal with in the next wave. And, and so when you're prioritizing things like that, think about how much we respect and hope for and support our, our Olympic teams. We're going to be sending this one into the virtual epicenter of the pandemic. And it would make sense to give them whatever protection they need if they're out there representing you. So, but, but that's for each country to decide. And uh, I, I think that the first interview I gave, they, they cut off the first part that I just told you. Mm-hmm. And they just said, you know, athletes should go to the, the head of the queue. And that's no, not yeah. what anybody uh, mm-hmm. would have had in mind. And in fact, uh, it's one of the reasons the, the Canadian Olympic Committee announced uh, about the same time as the uh, postponement decision was made uh, that Canada was not going to participate. Yeah, they're the first. Dick, you, you mentioned virtual. So I want to go back to your, your, your broadcasting rights negotiations, because honestly, one of the things that you could never have predicted when you were involved in negotiation and broadcasting rights back in the early 80s and continued to, was the fact that these games are going on primarily because we can watch these virtually. You know, we can, we have such a strong TV and we have such, we still have such involvement. So that definitely was a big plus. And the other pluses, like, was swimming as big a spectator sport when TV, before TV rights were already, you know, blew up? Or, or did TV help bolster the prominence of swimming? Oh, I think TV certainly helped. I mean, you know, if, if you go back to 1960, which is just as television was starting to come in, uh, you know, they had to fly the uh, the tapes overnight from Rome to New York to put on television in the U.S. the next day. Mm. In those days, the, there was a there was huge resistance from the international sports federations to an expansion of the Olympic program. I mean, you know, there was only one breaststroke event. There was only one backstroke event. One right. butterfly yeah. event. There were there were three, yeah, three freestyle events. Yeah. I mean, and that's all you had. So, yeah, because the the the, the international federations needed the money that they thought they could raise from their world championships. I think uh, that has changed very much, and now you've got uh, a proliferation of events. I mean, the swimming program is getting, frankly, a little silly at this point. It's uh, almost getting like like shooting, where you get thousands of shooters coming to the games so i think that that program needs to be uh, rationalized a bit but but the the amount of money that we generate now uh, is, is extraordinary you know in in montreal the, the total worldwide rights for television were 36 million dollars 35 million dollars by the time of atlanta uh brian they were 935 million and now it's 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 well over well north of two billion dollars, and and the and, and the and the winter games are almost at the same level now that we we finally you know the penny dropped and our IQ rose above room temperature and we said why why are we putting these both on in the same year I mean it just it sucks all the money out of the certainly the private uh, broadcasting systems and 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 governments are notoriously cheap so. Why, why don't we split these games up? It, it'll it'll give more prestige to the winter games and, and won't interfere with the summer. And the scarcity will remain the same. And that's a that's a big factor in the Olympic popularities. It, they only happen summer and winter once every four years. You don't have 
600 league games to winnow down the field to 32 finalists and you know you, you can you can compete 365 days a year on, on some of these things and you know the competitions are frankly are meaningless and they don't add to the high performance quotient uh, that, that everyone's looking for well in tokyo it's been announced that we'll go to morning finals for swimming, same as Beijing. And I remember when I was competing in, uh, to try to make the team for Beijing, um, there we switched all our Grand Prix meets to morning finals, and, and it was quite an adjustment. A lot of people thought that that was going to impact, certainly going to change the sport for a lot of for a lot of swimmers who are used to swimming at night, and and maybe switch the favor of uh, you know of athletes that are better at swimming in the morning. Everyone had to adjust all the same. Um, but but the money was controlling the sport. In Rio, we saw finals starting at 10 p.m. and then athletes up until the middle of the night, like the whole shifting of the schedule. Do you think that it's gone too far in terms of the, the, the broadcasting rights influencing the sport to a point that it's really all about that? Has it, in, has it infiltrated um, and, and disrupted um, you know, the, the pure nature of the athletic competition? I, I don't think the nature is is affected, and and you know the, the the time you can get used to, if if you know a year in advance, uh, you know what time the finals are are going to be, you can, you can prepare for that kind of a scenario. Uh, I think one of the discussions you have with uh, uh, with with broadcasters and with the, the normally the international sports federations, not not so much the NOCs, is. Uh, you know, this this will produce more money that goes into the system to support international federations, training programs through Olympic solidarity, all of those sorts of things. Uh, your call. If you insist on night finals in in Beijing, which is uh, isn't going to work very well in in some of the big swimming countries and and certainly not in North America, that's okay. If that's what you want, we, we the IOC have enough money to keep us going but i think they they would look at that and say no i you know we're depending more and more on the olympic television revenues for our own programs so we can uh, we can adapt to that got it like like you said the ioc you know they're doing okay financially um, so it's kind of up to the countries and everyone to determine what's going to be best with the broadcasting deals. But how about the athletes? How do they make money in this equation? And how do you feel it is best for athletes to have their fair share? Well, our, our catechism has always been uh, that you're welcome to come to the Olympic Games and and compete with the best in the world. And we hope you have lots of fun. But you're not here for the money. You, you get a lot of support from your National Olympic Committee, from your, your National Federation at home, uh, from training in, in the Olympic solidarity. That, that's, in a sense, your reward is, you know, it's, it's a variant, I suppose, of the NCAA um, view. And, and so you're welcome, but, but no, you're, you're not going to get paid for, for attending. Why is that? Is is that to preserve some of the ideals? Why, like, what, what do you think the root of that is? Just the well, the the root of it. <laughs> there are two roots. One is one is the the old diehard amateur uh, rules, where where the mere, if you're able to see, 
a dollar bill, uh, you know, you, you had to be careful. You weren't turned into a professional. Um, and, and the other was that there wasn't any money. Mm -hmm. There simply wasn't. Uh, there were the, the, the sponsorship of Olympic Games went more or less to the organization of the games to, to, to relieve the, the burden on, on the host country. And, and so it, it just was, was never a feature. I mean, when, when I grew up with Avery Brundage was the, the IOC president, he was the, the last bastion of amateurism. And, and their view of this was, you couldn't even take a job in the summer as a lifeguard because somehow sitting out in the hot sun, trying to make sure nobody drowns would give you a competitive advantage over some other swimmer that wasn't a lifeguard. It's complete nonsense. But you didn't dare take the chance that uh, somebody would uh, would complain. So anyway, it, it took us until really until 1986 to get rid of the whole concept of amateurism and, and, mm -hmm. and to open uh, the possibility of professionals to participate in the in the Olympics. And we saw Matt Gondi and Tom Yeager, and then eventually the Dream Team, etc. Um, what's your opinion of the ISL uh, and the International Swimming League? Who does are listening? Who you do compete and you do can win money competing? Do you think it's a happy cousin of the of the IOC? I mean, what do you think of the ISL in general as a swimmer first and foremost? I I, I don't know enough about it. Um, mm -hmm. If if it's just a, a matter of <clears throat> providing entertainment that can be monetized i don't think i would be willing to to, to train for something like that uh, but then i'm at serious risk of being old-fashioned on that but what point. about the way for the athletes to continue swimming into their late 20s and 30s which is what most of these you know once the ncaa system dries up and they can't support the athletes you know they retire like me or, or they are able to continue so in that sense well, if you if you you want to make a career out of your sport performance, uh, right. that that's that that seems to be a way that you can make, if not a great living, at least uh, you can you can get by. That's it's like being a, a, a professional squash player or something like that. Uh, you you can you can you can make fifty thousand dollars or something like that, but then it's it's not it's nothing like the the professional leagues in in football and uh, mm -hmm. baseball. Okay. Basketball. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about um, host cities. You know, we've seen the 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 massive investment in this you know huge showcase that the Olympics has has become, um, and then the the kind of downfall of you know uh, debt uh, that has fallen upon some of these cities after the massive investment. Athens, you know, weeds growing in the pool. The bird's nest in Beijing, you know, rusting and falling apart, and you know, very few good examples of of investment in facilities that have continued to to flourish after they've seen the games come and go. What are your thoughts on um, you know the 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 investment advice into the host cities, and what's the best way for them to maintain you know their a, a good return on their investment in the long term? Well, I, I think the, the key to that is good planning and, and starting early. Um, it, it, and, and I think maybe the new host selection process that the IOC is, is, uh, has adopted recently to, to, to deal with the, you know, a lot, a lot of the 
democracies are falling off the table because uh, you know they haven't prepared their populations for you know an understanding of what's what's uh, involved and what the legacy opportunities are so now we have a dialogue and we say all right how can how can we make this work for you as well as us and and i think that's that's going to make a big um, uh, difference but I mean, well-planned games uh, do, in fact, provide huge legacies. Mm -hmm. I mean, Barcelona went from a pretty sleepy Mediterranean town um, to to a a, a world-class uh, operator. They got a new airport. They got uh, new road systems and so on. Um, in a sense, Athens did much of the same thing. I mean, the, the, the Greeks had this emotional attachment yeah, amounting to, to claimed ownership of the Olympics, um, in you know in the philosophical sense, but they don't like all of the Olympic sports. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of the things they, they had to build for the games that that, uh, that they don't you know they don't like field hockey. They don't like things like that. They you know basketball they like and weightlifting they like and water polo they like, but but you know a lot of the other things not. So but they had to build them. And it's, it, it kind of depends on whose ox is getting gored here. When when you have weeds in the in the swimming pool and unused uh, gymnasia and so forth, if you you ask the, the uh, somebody on the street in Athens, mm -hmm. but you know, are you you know looking back, are you happy that you had the, the Olympics? They say, oh yeah, oh gosh, you know we got this whole new airport. It went from being the most dangerous airport in Europe, I think, to yeah, uh, fantastic. Right. You know, once they got into the the EC and, and got access to the credits, mm -hmm. uh, they could afford to do it. They got the Germans built it for them. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got a, a, an LRT system now that they never had. Mm -hmm. Used to take you an hour and a half to get from the airport to say to, to the center of Athens, to say the Athens Hilton where we were staying. Uh, we we had uh, when we came in. Uh, we got there in about 15 minutes and the two police officers were just laughing they couldn't they couldn't believe how well you know the system worked and so I, but it wasn't well put and it was last minute and uh, you know i remember being in the in the main stadium we'd had an ioc executive board meeting i think and we went to see it and there you are and it's about i don't know an eighty thousand seat stadium i forget what the number was and there's a guy, maybe two or three guys, with plastic seats, putting them on the, the yeah, pipes yeah. that are coming out of the cement floors and so on, and bolting them on. And I said, got maybe three or four thousand of them done. And uh, I said, Are you guys going to be ready for August 16th? And he says, What's August 16th? I said, Well, that's the opening of the Olympic Games in this stadium. He said, uh, what time on August 16th? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, 8 o'clock. Oh, he said, no, we'll be ready by 8 o'clock. <laughs> Easy. That's, that's, yep. that's how, that's how uh, uh, close the run thing it was. And, wow. And I, had, I'm, always, I'm always fascinated, but why, why do countries, frankly, want to host Olympic Games if they risk such yeah. heartache and debt? And, like, why do they want to do it? And we hear, well, the tourism and the, the money that comes to the economy. But, you know, they have, they, that those only if it's planned that works well it always wanted me but 
you know what like why they why they go for it but i want to switch gears a little bit to you know the 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 the, the Seoul olympic games i mean after two boycotted games we got to the Seoul games and and, and you were heavily involved in the ioc and then Tell me about, I want to hear what you thought about what happened in the Ben Johnson ordeal, you personally, and how that may have changed you. Well, um, the, the precursor to it was was uh, I, I, a couple of things that, that I saw. One, I'd, I'd seen the, the World Track and Field Championships in, in Rome in 87, where mm -hmm. uh, Johnson beat Lewis. Yep. So you're saying, ooh, ooh. Wonder how this is going to work out uh, next year. And uh, Ben was running well in the uh, in the early rounds, and, and I remember going to the semifinals in the morning of of, of the day where the finals was. And and sometimes I like to go up way up to the very top of the stadium and get a, a different view from what you normally do in the <coughs> in the poobah seats for the IOC. And so I'm watching, and the semifinal starts, and, and gun goes off. Bam! Ben had this incredible start, which were unlike any other sprinter. He simply stood up and started to run. Boom! Second shot goes off. I said, "Geez, what the hell was that? That wasn't a false start. It's just this. I think it was an Italian starter. Doesn't." know how fast Ben Johnson starts and so he thinks he must have jumped. Anyway, my wife is sitting beside me and she says, what are you going to do about it? I said, me? I said, go down there and talk to them. She points down to where the IAAF people are. And I said, I, anyway, she gave me a shot under the heart that would have felled an ox and down I went. And I knew some of them and I, one of them had actually worked in the Montreal games, Arthur Takach. And I said, Arthur, this is not fair. Uh, your guys are trying to take away Ben's start because they know that's where he wins his races. And you know that Carl Lewis wins them at the end because he's six foot four or whatever it is, and he's got these huge strides. And, and that that simply wasn't the false start. It's not fair. You got and he said, Oh no, these things are all scientifically measured and so on. I said, Well, that's great. Uh, could I have a look? Off he went. And it was 15 minutes later or so, and he comes back. Well, sometimes these things are not <laughs> all, all that clear. And I said, don't do that again. Because uh -huh. I will, you know, I will make sure that the conversation we've had has been, is reported elsewhere. So in the, in the, in the finals, uh, it was, it was pretty neat because my wife and I were, we were probably at about 65 meters. And he said, all right, well, now this is, a, now can Ben hold him off? Because he was a, he was ahead, as you would expect at that point. Uh -huh. And then he said, Jesus, Murphy, he's not losing anything to Lewis. And he, and he shut down a good five meters before the end, you know, with the hand up in the air. And, and then you look at the time and say, oh, my God, 978 or 979, whatever it was. Another world record. So... Olympic villages being Olympic villages in a day or so later, there's a whisper going around. A very important athlete in track and field has tested positive. Okay. No names attached or anything like that. Um, 
my wife and I, are, we went to the, watch the diving. I remember the day before the three-meter diving final, Greg Luganis whacked his head on the board and sort of collapsed. He was like a sack of cement when he went in. Fortunately, it was the last dive. Yeah. And his first nine dives were <laughs> more than enough to get him into the, uh, the final. So we, we went to see uh, that, and he did win it. And we, we were going back to the IOC hotel because Sam Ranch had invited the, the board of directors of Coca-Cola and their wives to have lunch with the great Juan Antonio. And, and I, I was I was the vice president, so I had to be there. And so we arrive and, and Sam Ranch is in a state. He's, he's just, all oh, this is, have you heard the news? Have you heard the news? And I said, uh, I don't know, but Greg Luganis won the, no, 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 no. He said, no, 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 the news. What is it? Well, he says, it's terrible. I said, has someone died? He says, no, no, it's worse. Ben Johnson tested positive. Thought, oh, God, here we go. So we had to sit through the, the lunch, and I, I was sitting beside the wife of one of the Coca-Cola directors. She said, oh, we're so glad your nice Ben Johnson beat that horrid Carl Lewis, interesting. Thank you very much. As soon as lunch is over, I run down to my room and I call the chef de mission. And she says, "Have you heard?" And I said, "I've heard." And they said, "Well, can we come down to to your hotel and see what we can do?" So we we had a we had a, a, a sitting room in our suite because I'm a, a poobah with a VP suite and. Uh, down they came with Charlie Francis and the chef de mission, the chief medical officer, the head of uh, Athletics Canada, Charlie Francis, the coach. And so, say, all right, so what, what do we know? She said, I don't know anything other than that there was a, an envelope slipped under my door in the middle of the night and I opened it and saw that our, you know, your athlete has tested positive. B sample will be analyzed at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning at this this place, and you're welcome to have a representative there. So we got the results yet? No. And they said, do we know what it is? And they said, no. Anyway, this goes on for a while. Finally, somebody comes back and says, I think it may have been stenozolol. This is an anabolic steroid. Charlie Francis, who had a huge toothache, he was feeling really crappy on two counts uh, that day. Stenozolol, he said, stenozolol. I don't want my guys on stenozolol on race days. It tightens them up. He said, I want them loose. And then you start to say, ooh. <laughs> the issue here is, is not, what, not whether, but what. <laughs> anyway, we, we went to the, the meeting of the IOC Medical Commission. Oh, oh yes. And I, the, told the COC people, listen, I'm conflicted up to yin-yang here. I mean, I'm tomorrow morning, if this doesn't go away, I'm going to have to vote on whether his, his medal is withdrawn. And they said, no, we understand. We just, but athletes' rights were a thing in the future in those days. And we just want to make sure that he has a chance to say whatever he has to say. I said, well, okay, I can, that much I can do. And so we get up in front of the medical commission and... Uh, I do my lawyer-like thing about confusion, benefit of the doubt, uh, possible substitution, all this sort of stuff. And and the head of the the, the doping and biochemistry subcommission was a guy called Manfred uh, Donica. 
the German scientist, I think from the Cologne lab. Or, and he said, you know, it's, it's like a Hogan's Heroes thing, you know, Mr. Pound, would you be interested in the scientific results of the tests? <laughs> if you're a lawyer, you know, you're dead meat. <laughs> you're, you're toast. So I said, well, look, I, I'm, I'm, I, I won't understand them, but our chief medical officer who's sitting beside me uh, probably will. So there's, that's not much of a dialogue. It's actually Donica laying down what happened. And, and so I look over and our chief medical officer had a white t-shirt on. You couldn't tell where the t-shirt ended and his skin started. He was that pale. And I said, what have we just heard? He said, we've heard two things. One is that he was full of stenozolol for which he tested positive. And secondly, that this is not the first time he's been using anabolic steroids because his, his entire renal cortex, which is what generates the testosterone in, in the system is, is almost completely inactive. You know, the, the body says, Oh, well, we got enough testosterone here, guys. We can, we can take a day off, uh, uh, uh making it ourselves. So anyway, Ben was duly disqualified and, and, and I think uh, I'm sure correctly. So did you believe him when you spoke to him? I, you know, I, I took him into the, uh, the, the bathroom when they, they brought him, they eventually brought him down from the village. And I said, look, I, I'm not going to go and lie to, to colleagues uh, on the executive board of the medical commission. So I want to talk to him first. So I said, took him down the hall. I said, Ben, are you on anything? Big round eye, no. I said, okay, we'll see what we can do, but it's, it's, a, it's a real uphill struggle. Anyway, so what folks who get caught do is they lie and they deny and they say it, they analyze the B sample because it, it, it can't possibly be by here and, and uh, you know, or I got it from the toilet seat, uh, all kinds of crazy excuses. So I think he was properly disqualified. Um, he certainly is not the only person in that final uh, who had uh, used drugs. In fact, one of the, the fun things was, as the rumor I told you about, all of a sudden the, the British call a press conference who confessed that it was Linford Christie who had uh, tested positive, which he had for a stimulant. And, and, and it was one of these stimulants where below X nanograms, it's, it's not doping above Y, it, it's automatic doping in between you can discuss. And so Linford Christie said, oh, it must have been the Ching Sang tea that I was drinking. And he, he won a squeaker. I think it was like 13 to 12. They said, oh, fuck it, it's not doping. We hear that all the time. We hear some teas. How do we regulate that? How do we stop that excuse being out there? Or when? how do we know that actually is a real excuse? Do we need regulations of these things? What's going on? Regulation of what things? Oh, like supplements or the tea or oh. like, I mean, what's your opinion on that? We often hear it's a tea, it's the cream. It was a supplement I had that was tainted. Yeah. Well, Any regulations? But we have regulations. And yeah. that is rule one, you are responsible for whatever's in your system. Mm -hmm. If you're not sure what it is, don't take it. And, and, you know, the, the supplement game has been around for years where you, you get a supplement, you know, you look on it and you say, well, the, it doesn't say there's a steroid uh, in it. 
you go and empty that into a wastebasket and you put in the stuff that you're taking and then say, how could this happen to me? It's a, you know, look, I, this, this is the, my bottle of stuff. It, it's just tainted. It's a, yep. not my, not my fault. So, I mean, it, you, you can't, it's almost impossible to prove intent. And so the, the decision that, that everyone's lived with and, and everyone is, is pretty comfortable with it is that it's your responsibility. Have you had an applicant lie to you who say, yeah, I did it. I was taking drugs and I should be punished. And, and what's your opinion if, if that ever happened? I've, I've had it happen very seldom. Actually, we were dealing with some, uh, I think they were shot putters, Canadian shot putters, and who were sort of of, of Olympic caliber. They, they were training in, in, in the States in, a, in a, I think, a Division One. assuming there is Division One. Yeah, there was lots of that. And he said, so I, I was doing that. Now I'm trying to think. He said, I, was I on the stuff at that time or was I, was I between uh, treatments? And he said, no, no, I, I, I took some of this stuff. And uh, yeah. So it's, uh, it, it happens rarely. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, if, if you're caught, you should, uh, you should admit it and, and get it behind you as fast as you can. Do you think you can, once you serve time, and you admit it, and you make reparations. Could you should be allowed to compete again? Or I mean, what, what's your view on that? Like the ISL doesn't let anybody who has any acquisitions accusations of of being tainted compete. What's your opinion? If you serve the the ban, you've admitted it, you've wronged, you made a mistake. Is there a second chance or no? Oh yeah, sure, absolutely. No, no, that, you, the 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 offense is described. The sanction is prescribed. That's that's sort of deemed the, the proportionate response to that particular offense, and and once you've done the time, no, you, you should be welcomed back with 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 no further, you know, character association. Let Let's talk about uh, John. I know you have to you have to jump soon. John has to go to a, a patient, right? So yeah. Sorry about that, Dick. I'm going to hop off. Uh, great stuff. Thanks again. I'm to take an aspirin. And call you in the morning. <laughs> Um, Dick, you, you and nice I to see you. See John, you and I talked briefly about a, a previous guest of ours, um, Enif Bridgeter, and and we talk about the DDR regime of, of the seventies. Now, th this was this was a was interesting because they they admit that they did not know that they were being tested, a bit being being drugged. It was systematic. Systematic. They generally thought they won these medals. They generally thought they achieved well until it was proven later. What's your opinion on any reparations um, about what happened in the 70s from not just the Americans who were cheated of it, but the others like Enith and many, many, many others uh, throughout the six years or whatever? Well, it, it, it's a tough call. I mean, uh, one of the things that, that the, uh, the DDR women were, were led to believe was that everybody else was doing it. And in fact, in Europe, if you go, they say, yeah, yeah, we, we have, we certainly have doping problems in sport in Europe, but, but the real gold medalists in doping are the Americans. And so we, you know, you, 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 you drink the, uh, mm -hmm. the level playing field Kool-Aid. Now in, in Germany, there, the, the scientific work that was being done and the stuff that was being administered, particularly to adolescent females where, where the, the results were really extraordinary. I mean, it worked in men as well, but, but the, you know, the ideal subjects were, were adolescent uh, females. 
they were told that these were vitamins and that they were compulsory uh, as part of the program. And in the DDR, compulsory meant compulsory. And, and you took them and I don't, I don't know whether the, the body changes and so on uh, impress themselves upon the, the subjects. But uh, when, when you think of what they were doing with these, uh, these kids, uh, if you're a medical ethicist, your hair would be standing on end. It was just unconscionable. So um, this went on and on for a number of years as, as we got better at, at, at finding things. You know, 76 was, you know, only the second games after we started testing uh, drugs. You know, we started in, in 68 in, in the winter games in Grenoble and, you know, and then obviously in Mexico. But uh, the only tests that were being done in those days were by the IOC, yeah, and 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 the in the international federations, uh, which are filled with their own testosterone, would not allow the IOC to test any of their athletes in between games. And it took years and years and years to get them to at least agree to test in their their world championships. But that's the only uh, competitions that were were tested. And I, I remember when I became president of WADA, we said, look, we've got to get out into the in, into the field leading up to Sydney and, and testing um, before the games. We, we confined ourselves to the summer games because they were right around the corner. And as we got out there, we found that, that a, an overwhelming majority of the summer international sports federations did not even have rules that permitted them to test their athletes out of competition. So, I mean, that was a real eye-opener for me. I said, I, all this crap I've been listening to by the federations about clean sport and, and, and our own medical commission saying that they were uh, happy with uh, the test was just nonsense. And so it's gone. And, uh, once the investigation of the DDR came out, uh, you know, years, years after the fact, and um, a lot of the the systematic uh, doping and all the processes came to the to the public light. Why were the medals not stripped from the East Germans? At at the time, and I think I think there's still a time that there's a limitation period with respect to. And at one point, it was any problems arising out of the games in 1972 have to be dealt with before the opening ceremonies in 1976. So you had this period of prescription. It's now been extended in the case of doping, at least, uh, to uh, 10 years because we keep the samples uh, that long and, and can test them uh, whenever we want. But but there's got to be some kind of closure to, to each edition of the games. It gets a little sketchier, I must say, um, when you get to things like, uh, you know, what's his name? Um, Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to get back a medal from 1912 mm -hmm. for, for somebody who's no longer around. And in fact, you know, many of his family would be quite elderly. So, but that's, you know, I think what, what is now painted as, as a racial issue as a, rather than an amateur Mm -hmm. 
breach of the amateur rules is is harder to deal with than and in in the current climate uh, even harder uh, with with the Black Lives Matter and, and all of those things. So if the it's a statute of thing or like sort of a period of influence with being able to strip metals. What would be wrong with conferring medals to those that were, you know, that science would prove were 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 wronged, being, you know, Anath Brigitha, uh, for example, or some some others that were would be top of podium or podium swimmers that didn't have their Olympic moment as a result of the East Germans cheating. Well, uh, part of the issue there is uh, some of those athletes may not have been tested. You know, it, we, we generally tend to do in, in, the, in the Olympics, do the first three, maybe the first four, one other from the, uh, mm -hmm. the, the finals and some from the, you know, random samples from the field. Uh -huh. So they would say, well, you know, how do you know that Brian wasn't doped? Because he, he, he wasn't tested. And why should he be given the benefit of the doubt? And it, it, it's, not, it's not an easy... Mm -hmm. um, question to wrestle with, I must say, and, and, and it's 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 not without uh, occasional loopholes. Is there an avenue that swimming could pursue? Uh, you know, maybe go through FINA and lobby through FINA if it's a possible avenue to argue somewhere. Well, I think if if an international federation were to come forward and say we think this would be an appropriate. Uh, um outcome in the circumstances that would have uh, a lot more weight than than simply uh, uh the usopc or the canadian mm -hmm. olympic committee saying that the, this should be the result because my athlete was cheated and, and we certainly had some from point claire who would have been uh, medalists or higher medalists than uh, they ended up being yeah totally dick you, you mentioned about how do we know Brian was in cheating, for instance, and we get the benefit of doubt. And benefit of doubt comes from a, a, a intrinsic bias, almost we have, where we assume certain things about certain nationalities. Um, you know, like what if Mark Spitz was was Russian back then, or what have you? Is there a bias in how we approach um, our our perceptions and how even we treat some of these athletes? Is that bias because of their nationality? And why is that? Well, I don't. I don't think within the Olympic. Um, bubble uh, that that happens. I mean, I think I think we're when you think of the the, uh, the world at large, we're remarkably free of discrimination within that bubble. And um, so, uh, it, it may be out there in the public there's that there's a perception, and, and you know, Russia has certainly done nothing to uh, polish its reputation in the last uh, few years. I mean, it's constant, constant denial and appealing of everything in, in very, very well-financed uh, legal proceedings, um, I think has, has made them look worse than, than if they'd said, yeah, you're right, we're all screwed up and, and we've got to change and we will change and, and we're sorry to everybody who's been damaged by this. But that's just not a, uh, doesn't seem to be a, within the, the state vocabulary. Do, do you think that there's any kind of conflict of interest in WADA currently? I mean, it, it, with with um, with the issue of, you know, oh my gosh, I got a test. I mean, look at you. You had Ben Johnson test positive 
and you have a huge interest in the Canadian Olympic movement and what and you know what Canada was jockeying for the Winter Olympics, right? And I mean, Calgary was happening, but you didn't let that influence you know, how you show up arbitrate. Do you think we should have a fully independent body in WADA, or is there as much as can be? I, I think it's pretty. Uh... It's pretty independent now. And basically, you're talking about doping in sport. Yep. So one half of that community is is the sport community. The athletes, the IFs, the IOC, the NOCs. And the other half are the are the governments of the world. and And so they're all there. No, no single stakeholder is in a possession a position to to dictate what happens in in water. if the if the uh, sport movement doesn't like something that the government members are proposing, all it takes is one to say, no, I don't agree. And, and you can't get the majority. So that's pretty good. I think, I mean, coming after the, you know, 10 years after the, uh, yeah. the Ben Johnson thing, where I, I simply said, look, I have a, a conflict and, and um, you know, I, I can't act on, on the, that case. When it came to Ross Rabagliati in, in the snowboard in, in Nagano, I just said, look, I, I'm completely conflicted in this. Uh, mm -hmm. I cannot take part in the, in the decision, nor even in the discussion. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's, you, you need to have that kind of a, a, either a requirement, which we now have it through our ethics commission, or, or a, a personal one where you say, no, it's, and I remember I got lots of poo in, in the media, the Canadian media in particular, uh, for, for uh, not taking part in this discussion. And, and the implied message there was, well, I'm supposed to be there in the room to defend uh, the Canadian athlete. And they said, no, we we're trying to figure out whether he's, he was liable to be tested for, uh, this was marijuana. Uh, he, he was kind of the opposite of, of Bill Clinton. You know, he, he said he, he inhaled but didn't smoke, and, <laughs> and the other the other way around. But but uh, I, we we kind of per personally, I, I I thought we we kind of got ambushed uh, yeah. when we when we had the uh, the list of prohibited substances, and. The, Cocaine and heroin and marijuana had always been on the list because they were illegal mm -hmm. in many countries. And, and so we, in, in our perhaps lack of wisdom at, at that point, instead of saying, look, none of these things affect sport performance, in, in, certainly in a positive way. You know, if, if Rabagliati was filled with marijuana and he's going down at a gazillion miles an hour on a snowboard saying, Oh wow! <laughs> Mountain, he'd have been part of it in in a hundred meters. So instead of saying we're a sport organization, that, that's the the limit of our responsibility. If the states, governments want to regulate against the recreational and and harder drugs, that's something that they should consider and, and do. But it's not for a sport organization to but make that determination. How that's I mean I feel like Song Yan, who is the Michael Jordan of China. He is the biggest rock star in the whole country. For for there to be a threat of taking him down from 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 you know that that podium they put him on, 
the Chinese government gets involved. And then we, we talk in, I mean, there might be a prime minister calling a prime minister over this. I mean, that's a very difficult thing to do when you start, when you are representing a country at the highest level and you are the biggest thing of that country, isn't it? Well, it, 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 I can see why you might get caught up in that. But I mean, what, what you should be saying as the prime minister or, or president is, is it, look, this, this is, governments don't have any role to play here. This is an entirely private mm -hmm. uh, organization. And, and uh, while we're happy, say, coming up in Beijing to be the host uh, country, we don't run it. I mean, the, the head of state of China is given one sentence scripted by the IOC, which, which he, he or she will say at the opening ceremonies. I declare the games open. That's it. Yep. And he said it, it, it would not be appropriate for me or, or, or my government to insert ourselves into this, particularly when we don't know the facts. Even, even being an independent organization, um, you know, it's it's hard to separate that because you mentioned Sun Yang, Luke, uh, the um, tester or the testing assistant was um, reported to have uh, asked for Sun Yang's autograph or to take a selfie with him, right? And so, you know, and there's other countries that uh, they're still locals and especially if these are sports stars, they're fans. And so there can be still a conflict of interest um, with, you know, the people who are collecting samples or, you know, on even on behalf of, of WADA. So even despite your the, the best efforts of the organization to to police and to educate and to uh, uphold uh, morals and ethics within the organization, mm -hmm. it's be a constant battle that you're having to fight, um, you know, to to ensure the integrity of of the entire organization. Right. So I, I'm just curious. So maybe to close, because we don't keep too, too much of your time is what what um, what do you think is the the biggest um, priority? What's the most important thing that that um, either WADA or you know the world at large can do to combat um, you know systematic doping or just doping in general right now? Like what's on the horizon? What are your what are your top priorities? Well, the, the top priorities would be having rules that are clear, doing your best to educate all of the athletes and the federations and the NOCs about that and the IOC to some degree uh, about what they are, how they'll be interpreted, uh, what what the standards of proof are, uh, what substance, you know, what what is the list, how do you make sure that you don't inadvertently um, take something that you shouldn't and all you can be sure of is, is that uh, in the end the decision will be made by a, an independent arbitral tribunal that has expertise in sport and, and, and doping matters. Uh, you're not going to be turned over to a, a state court uh, where there, there's no expertise in this sort of thing. Uh, there's long, complicated, dragged out procedures. You've got to be able to, you know, it, we, we have with CAS, uh, in the Court of Arbitration for Sport, during the Olympic Games, we have a, an ad hoc panel that goes to the host city and if there's a, a complaint or an action or a request for arbitration, the reasoned decision of the arbitral panel has to be rendered within 24 hours. So it's kind of drumhead justice, but but you get somebody looking at it and, and uh, uh, independently 
counsel are provided uh, for any athlete or official who's implicated. So it's, it's a pretty good system. Um, and it, but like all systems that uh, are operated by people, there's the occasional mistake. But, but institutionally, um, it's, it's pretty well governed. And, and pretty well monitored. I always felt I was one step behind. I, even even when I was trained on it in the nineties in McGill, I remember I always remember saying, "Yeah, but it takes us a year to get this particular chemical formula illegal, and all they have to do is add an OH on it, or an inert iron, and you have to go through the whole rigmarole." So even back then, I felt that then it was are, are you guys keeping ahead, or at least in pace with what's going on, or you have no idea really until it happens? Well, I think we're a lot better than we were. Uh, for sure, and and uh, but it is a cat and mouse game, you know. As as something gets discovered, uh, you know, somebody invents the clear by tweaking that uh, molecule a bit. I, I think we're much faster at it now, much much more able to measure uh, and find microdosing. Uh, we've we've actually got into uh, a very close cooperation with the pharma industry, mm. who are who are not they they trust WADA. Not to give away their molecules and you know, put their patents in danger, but but saying what are we looking for? What are, what are the clinical outcomes of, of using this particular substance? Uh, how can you test for it? Because they have to be able to test, uh, you know, to get some of their F FDA approvals, and 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 they'll share that with us. And I mean, you can see in the old days where somebody's reading the literature and says there's a post-cancer treatment uh, for this erythropoietin produces more faster and more red blood cells. Boom, you say, wait a minute, red <laughs> blood cells, more blood to the muscles, better performance. Taxi, let's go down and, and get some of this stuff. And, and so uh, that, that took a while, but was, but you know the cooperation that we started, we'd started even just before Salt Lake City in, in 2002. Uh, we're able to say when, when uh, you know, Muleg comes off the hill, and test positive. Mm -hmm. He's been told this is a variation of EPO that there's nobody knows about it. It's never been tested. It's not mm -hmm. not for public sale. And we're able to say, guess what we found? Well, give me back the medal. Yeah. So it 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 it, it it's improving. It, I mean, it's it's experience based, and and uh, you know, you, you got to work through it. But but I, the the I think the the shoot is getting narrower. Uh, for anybody that is, is going to try and dope, and cool. we've got now got finally got the power to do investigations, oh. which is frankly a lot more effective in in finding out doping and then encouraging whistleblowers to who actually know what's going on to, to point us in the right direction. Yeah. You know who should be tested and for what and when and where are the training camps where all this happens and you know that sort of stuff is what the you know the the, the investigation I chaired on on Russian athletics depended very much on that kind of information. And, you know, we were able to get enough uh, information to say, all right, the lab guy is crooked. The lab is, is totally compromised. It should, its accreditation should be withdrawn and then removed. Uh, we got the, the IAAF to suspend the Russian National Federation. Mm -hmm. So we had a, you know, some really good outcomes, which led to McLaren's report. Uh, That's right. Six or eight months later, uh, which was even more damaging and banned Russia. Yeah. 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 
Dick, we could pick your brain for hours. You're a you're a man of many. Hey, maybe 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 I'll drive. <laughs> <laughs> man, uh, yeah, would love to have you back sometime to yeah, any anytime on these topics. But um, yeah, uh, thanks so much for spending the time, and um, yeah, we really appreciate it. Okay, well, nice to be with you. All right, Thank cheers you. for this episode of the Social Kick Podcast, and uh, yeah, we'll see you later. Hey, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you're enjoying Social Kick, tell your friends about it. And be sure to tell us what you liked by leaving a comment. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at The Social Kick Podcast. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Social Kick. And you can find all of our content on our website at thesocialkick.com.